If you remember the things we talked about last Sunday, you'll remember that uh, John, John the baptizer, was calling people to leave their comfortable homes, leave their towns, leave their villages, and head out into the wilderness. In the wilderness, they confronted the fact that they had strayed from their purpose and had lost the kind of relationship with God that they once had. Returning to the wilderness where everything began so many years before with the nation of Israel was a symbolic act. It was symbolic of a fresh start. John's baptism wiped away their sins. Jesus' baptism, the one that Jesus would pour out on the people, was the brought with the Holy Spirit, who is power to live lives modeled after Christ. So in a lot of ways, the passage we're going to talk about today is just after the starter's pistol has been fired. God has announced his approval of Jesus and of the ministry of Jesus by a voice from heaven and a dove descending on Jesus. Jesus has demonstrated his obedience to the Father by the 40 days that he spends in the wilderness communing with the Father. And at the end of that period of time, the 40 days are finished, Jesus now heads out to begin the three years of his public ministry. Don't miss this fact. Jesus could have stayed in the desert, right? John was in the desert. John called people to him out of the desert. Jesus could have stayed in the desert and he could have demanded that everyone come to him out in the desert to join him, the king, join him in the kingdom there. But he doesn't do that. He knows that if he requires everyone to go out to the desert to find him, there will be many people who will not hear and many people who will be missed. I mean, there's plenty of folks who just work all the time to survive. They can't take time off work to go out to the desert. There are plenty of folks who are caught up in special circumstances, disabilities, hardships, broken relationships, folks who have no chance of escaping to the desert. And Jesus doesn't want anyone to miss the opportunity to find him. And so rather than staying in the desert, Jesus goes to them. Jesus goes to them. This shouldn't be surprising to us. He's been leaving home and traveling to the people who need him from the moment he left heaven's throne and was born in a manger in Bethlehem. So we shouldn't be surprised if he's willing to go from heaven to earth, be one of us, that he's willing to go from the desert to where we live to find us and to invite us into the kingdom. This is Mark chapter 1, continuing in the same section of scripture, starting in verse 21 this morning. Mark 1, 21. I'll be reading through verse 28. I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Mark 1, 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, 
not as the teachers of the law, just that a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him? News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. You may be seated. We suspect that the town of Capernaum is located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So for those of you in need of a geography lesson, if this is the Mediterranean Sea, okay, Mediterranean Sea, and we have Italy here and Greece here, we have Israel here, and we have after the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. So we're right about here over on the map, in case you're wondering where we are. Pretty far from Rome. I mean, remember Italy's on that little boot-shaped peninsula way over here. And we're over here in Capernaum, just north and west of the Sea of Galilee. It's here in what is the hometown of some of the disciples he has just called that Jesus preaches his very first sermon. You know the text of his sermon. You probably are all sitting there wishing that I would be more like Jesus and preach these kinds of sermons, right? The whole sermon is, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That's all we get, that's the record. It takes 0.6 seconds to say that. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Pregnant words, full of possibility for us. But it is a very direct message. And in the mouth of Jesus, it has the force of being a command coming directly from God. Think about that. If God showed up in church today as the preacher and told you exactly what you needed to do now, well, there's some force behind that, right? It's not like you have a, a lot of option. It's not like you can think about it for a very long time if you really understand that it's God speaking. As you listen to the words of this passage, you're going to hear the repetition. You heard the repetition of the word authority. Jesus taught with authority. Now, there are different kinds of authority. There is an authority that comes with logical thinking. If I can prove to you with sound thinking, with firm evidence that something is true, you might be convinced and start to believe me. That's one kind of authority. The authority that comes from rational thought based on good evidence. There's another kind of authority that comes from status, accomplishment, and reputation. 
Doctors, for example, by their training and reputation, speak in authoritative ways about disease and treatment. The better their track record, the better their reputation. And the better their reputation, the greater their authority. If you've watched any television, you know that in, in court, expert witnesses are called to testify. These individuals have demonstrated skill and experience in a certain area, and so we defer to their opinion when it comes to questions within their area of expertise. In Jesus' day, rabbis, by training and experience, spoke about God's expectations for his people. When they spoke, they had a level of authority based on what they had learned from the Holy Scriptures. The, the derived authority came from their source, from their studies, from their experience, and from their logical, persuasive thinking. People understood the level of authority of their teachers by the way the teachers spoke and the way they pointed people back to the Scriptures. But now Jesus is speaking, and he is speaking on a whole different level. He is speaking in the style of the Old Testament prophets who were speaking a direct word from God to the people of God in a specific circumstance, at a specific time, in a specific place. And Jesus' speech is immediate, and forceful, immediate and forceful. The rabbi said, we should all follow the law. Jesus says, repent of your sinning. There's a difference, isn't there? You know, we ought to all do this. Repent now. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room in repent now. Jesus says, Turn away from your sinning. Enter God's kingdom now. This is a prophetic utterance, and it carries a whole new level of authority. It is the authority of the voice of God. It's, it's no surprise then, in an exchange like this, that the people get a little stirred up. William Lane in his commentary says, getting people stirred up is the very act of fishing. And what he means is, Jesus' words, I will make you fishers of men. He's saying this kind of direct teaching with authority that is seen to be the prophetic utterance of God gets people stirred up. He's issuing a command that places people in a crisis of decision again. He's telling them what they must do to enter the kingdom of God, and he is telling them to enter the kingdom of God now. The previous foundation of their lives has been shaken. New truth has been proclaimed. Their systems of self-approval have been questioned, and things are in an upheaval. There are decisions to make. And Jesus is telling them with authority what they need to choose to do now. 
This is a heated confrontation. And I think it's interesting in this moment, this crisis of decision, this, this time of receiving an authoritative word from God where my life is put into some level of chaos, in the middle of all of that, a demon speaks. Do you feel the distraction in that? Do you feel the, the attempt of the enemy to move people away from this crisis of decision? Can you see the enemy of our soul saying, don't pay attention to what that man up there said. It's sort of like the old Wizard of Oz thing, right? Ignore that man behind the curtain. Don't pay attention to what Jesus said. And the demon comes along to shift everyone's attention from Jesus to the demon. The demon speaks. The grammar used in this text to convey the words of the demon makes it clear that these are words of combat and judgment. First of all, back in that day, there was the belief if you knew someone's exact name, you could gain a certain level of power over them. So by using their exact name, you could influence, change the, the calculus of the situation. And so in this passage, first of all, we have the demon trying to exactly identify Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, right? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And so the demon is in a combative way trying to gain influence over Jesus. Also, notice that the demon is questioning what Jesus is doing. Have you come to destroy us? Or, or actually, you could equally translate this sentence, you have come to destroy us, attempting to make Jesus the enemy. And maybe the accusation of the demon is saying, you know, it's not time for you to destroy us yet. Here you are to destroy us, but you're too early. This is still our time, right? There's, there's a confrontation here going. Jesus is announcing the kingdom and the demon is trying to gather attention. It's really clear from the narrative that Jesus is having none of that, right? He yields no power to evil or to the demonic at any point. He just simply says, be silent. Be silent. Jesus commands, the demon obeys. Interesting, I think to me, maybe to you, is that the demon knows more about Jesus than the people who are standing around there in the synagogue that day. I mean... They, these demons, see the immediate threat that someone with the presence of the Holy Spirit has on them. I mean, the demon knows that the Spirit is the ultimate threat to their existence. But Jesus does not permit the demon to speak. Jesus exercises authority yet again in the presence of the assembled congregation, He's already exercised authority in the manner of his teaching. Now he exercises his authority in the manner of speaking to the demon. And he is not threatened in the least. And his power to compel the demon to leave is obvious. And everyone in the crowd who had their attention shifted from the crisis of decision to enter the kingdom to the interaction of the demon has their attention shifted once again to the fact that Jesus speaks and the demon leaves. And that's not something they've seen before. That this one who is the Holy One of Israel, 
has power in the spirit world and over all demons. And, and they notice how it happens too. It's not like Jesus like starts to wave his hands or says some special incantation or reveals some secret knowledge or, or casts some spells. There's none of that. There's none of what passes for magic in the ancient world there. This is just simple authority. Be silent, come out of him. It's just the power of Jesus. And they notice, and they're amazed. And they say, what is this? Here's a new teaching. The kingdom of God is here, enter. Here's a new authority. He commands like the prophets of old. Here's a new power. Even the demons tremble before the power of this mighty prophet, whoever he is. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was, but they cannot escape what they have seen and what they have heard. And I've often wondered why. I mean, you look at this scene And I think what we're supposed to notice is this. The disturbance of humanity has fully begun. When Jesus launches his ministry in this way, the disturbance of humanity has fully begun and we have been placed, all of us for all time, in the crisis of decision. Nothing we do will be good enough. We will never measure up. We have been served notice that our only hope is entering the kingdom of God. And so the message for us is repent and enter the kingdom. And until we do, we live in the valley of the crisis of decision, disturbed by the words of Jesus. As I listen to this passage, a couple of questions come to my mind. The first is, why doesn't Jesus just let the demon speak? I mean, what the demon said is true. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Messiah of God. He's giving better testimony to the identity of Jesus than any of the people there. Why didn't he just let the demon speak? I mean, the demon is obvious to the people who are there. He's giving expert testimony to the identity of Jesus. But I'm wondering, maybe Jesus cares about where people get their information about him. I mean, even if the demon is the one who knows best who Jesus is at the moment, does that really mean that demonic testimony is reliable? I mean, isn't he going to spin the information to his own perspective? If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's books, The Screwtape Letters, you have an example of what I'm talking about. In that particular book, there's a dialogue between a senior tempter and a junior tempter, two demons. And they talk about how they can knock the faith out of inexperienced Christians. It's an attempt of C.S. Lewis to give us insight into how we're so easily tempted. And so the senior tempter is talking to the junior tempter. And whenever they talk about God in this letter, they talk about God as the enemy, right? God is not our enemy, but from the perspective of a demon, 
he's the enemy. And maybe that's why Jesus doesn't want any demons talking about him. Why would Jesus want anyone to get their information about him from someone who calls him the enemy? I think all of us need to think deeply about where we get our information, about God, about humanity, about our world, for exactly the same reason. Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul makes it clear that we are to keep ourselves in touch with what is good and the things that lead us in the right direction. So if the news, the podcast, the blogs that you are reading make you more irritable, more suspicious, more angry, harder to get along with, stop listening to them and listen to something else. If you hang out with people who make you more irritable, more suspicious, more angry, harder to get along with, stop hanging out with them. And if they're church folks, raise the issue with them. The goal of Paul's injunction is clear. Meditate on what is good and godly. And by telling folks to dwell on what Paul has taught them, he's telling them also to hang with folks who move you in a positive direction. Because we're meant to walk this journey to heaven together with folks who are all moving in the same direction. Doesn't the scripture say, encourage one another, spur one another on to good works? You want folks who are going to help move you in the right direction, not folks who take us in the wrong direction. In other words, stop listening to demons and stop hanging out with his minions. You say, Pastor, you're calling my friends demonic? Let's restate the question. Are the folks you spend the most time with drawing you closer to Christ or farther away from him? If they're drawing you farther away from him, then the extent to which they damage your relationship to Christ is the extent to which they are demonic. We don't have anything to do with that stuff. We are moving in the other direction. You can be the judge of whether their influence in your life are demonic or Christ-like. Jesus had two words for the demon and all things demonic. Be silent. And then he cast them away. The second question I'd like to ask is this. Having heard the words of Jesus, his introductory sermon, are we still disturbed? And by disturbed, I mean agitated. Are we still considering those words? Are we lingering in the crisis of decision? You see, Jesus speaks and the people become agitated. And agitated isn't bad. It simply means stirred up from their comfortable slumber and brought to the place where they have to make a decision. They're agitated at first because he teaches in a brand new way. 
as someone who really knows what he's talking about and isn't relying on the wisdom or advice of others to formulate his opinions. His obvious authority challenges their preconceived notions. They are agitated further when he states that they have a need for repentance. They may even know their need for repentance, but they don't like anyone else telling them that it's so. You know folks, you've heard of folks who say, I mean, I don't have any need to repent. I never did anything wrong. And you sort of look at them and say, you know, like, what universe do you live in? And what do you mean you don't have a need to repent? I don't know anyone who's lived perfectly. I know none of those people. And so if a person isn't insightful enough personally to know that there's a need for repentance, I'm not borrowing their judgment on any other thing. Jesus has told these folks they need to repent, and they don't like that much. And sometimes we don't like that either because we would rather do what we want to do when we want to do it than listen to the voice of God who is correcting us and who wants what's best for us. And so we choose, we must choose, either to do our own thing based on our infinite wisdom or do what God tells us to do based on his actual infinite wisdom. We get to make that choice. And we just don't want anyone telling us what to do. But Jesus does because he loves us. And he calls us to repentance. And he calls us to enter his family where we can be watched and cared for in ways that will lead us in eternal pathways. And so there's agitation there. These people are also agitated because he demonstrates his authority by casting out the demon right in front of them. I don't know, do you, if you've watched any television recently, you see the Jersey Mike's uh, advertisements where Danny DeVito comes on and he says, look, there's a slice of my meat right in front of you. That's what he says. That's sort of what happened here. Jesus is kicking out the demons right in front of them. It didn't happen behind closed doors anywhere. They got to see it right there in church. And you know, if you have anything spectacular like that happen in church, there's some talking that's going on. What's the final phrase of this section of scripture? And his fame spread throughout the region. Everyone's talking about the fact that this prophet came and threw the synagogue into uproar because he spoke to them directly the words of God challenged them to repent and invited them into the kingdom. I'm wondering, would we be disturbed by that kind of message today? Do we need to have the courage to change course if the Spirit speaks to us? Do we need to, do we need to change where we get our information? Do we need to change our relationships with those who influence us in the wrong direction? Do we need to change our attitudes so they reflect the wisdom of heaven rather than MSNBC or CNN or Fox? Where are we going to get our information about the world? Well, we have this book. Um, it's got like two major sections in it. There's 39 inside chapters in the first section and 27 in the second section. We call the first section the Old Testament, the second section the New Testament. And we can pretty much learn all we need to know about the world and humanity right in there. 
It's in there. And we get to the middle of the book of Luke and we start reading the Lord's Prayer. We get the kind of example and teaching that shapes our hearts, that tells us that we need to invite the Lord to be made holy through us, that we need to rely on him for our daily needs, that we have to ask forgiveness for the things that we've done wrong and at the same time forgive everyone else the things that they've done wrong. And we have to ask this Holy Spirit not to lead us into temptation, but to take us from the opposite direction. Take us away from anything that's demonic and take us towards the things that lead us to him. And then we open ourselves to his power that we can be his children. That's where we need our information from. It's the people who embrace that information who we need as comrades and allies as we walk to heaven together. And if we will submit to the authority of Christ, if we will not resent his corrective work in our lives, then he can be trusted to take us to the destination he has in mind. Are are you willing to hear his voice today? Are you willing to recognize his authority today? Has he placed us in a crisis of decision today? I'm convinced that we can find ourselves back in a crisis of decision even after we enter the kingdom of God. We repent and we enter the kingdom, but day by day we have got to decide whether we are going to acknowledge his authority. Does he still know what's best for me? Can I still trust him to lead me in the correct way? Is the voice of the Holy Spirit in me that's telling me to stop doing this or start doing this, is that reliable? Anytime Jesus speaks, it seems it throws us into a crisis of decision. Are we going to obey? Or are we going to not obey? And if you find yourselves in the crisis of decision, today's the day to say, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you call me to do. Your ways are right. You are authoritative. I recognize that you are true and good, that you are for me, that you will help me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the example of Jesus which teaches us and for the presence of your Holy Spirit that leads us day by day. And we would ask that you would continue to lead us moment by moment. That you would help us to perceive what it is you're saying to us and give us the ability to do what it is you call us to do. May we recognize you for who you are. May we acknowledge your authority. May we submit to it that we might have purpose and fulfillment in life and that we, through our lives, might bring you glory. This we pray in your name. Amen. I'd invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to sing a song. Teach me your way, O Lord. And if while we're singing, 
you would like to kneel at this altar and pledge your obedience to Christ, you're welcome to do that while we sing. Let's sing together. Teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me your way. Your guiding grace afford. Teach me your way. Help me to walk upright. For by faith by sight together may we do all that Jesus calls us to do that he might be glorified in our lives together to his glory we pray amen go in peace